0: Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. We'll turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 6. Deuteronomy chapter number six, starting a series this evening called God is one. God is one. We've got a few weeks allocated for this and we'll see what we can get accomplished in those few work weeks. Amen. Tonight will very simply just kind of be of a introductory getting our feet wet type of scenario here this evening. Amen. How many believe that your God is one? Indivisibly one. Absolutely one. Amen. And he is he is that tonight. We're thankful. Amen. For him. Deuteronomy chapter number six. I'm going to start with verse number one. The Bible says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God. To keep all his statutes and commandments which I command thee. Thou and thy son and thy son's son. All the days of thy life. And that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel. And observe to do it that it may be well with thee. And that ye may increase mightily. As the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. And the land that floweth with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. And with all thy soul. And with all thy might. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's, that's verse number 4. Brother Mason, can you do that in Hebrew, Hebrew for us? Surely so. It's one of the great benefits of having a Hebrew student now for years in the church. Amen. I don't even have to attempt. Amen. Tonight, so we are going to speak about God as one. Again, we're just getting our feet wet. Deuteronomy 6 and 4 is a, is a cornerstone of the church. I say the church because I don't want to just say, well, the apostolic Pentecostal church It is that, but it is of the church. Cornerstone of the church. Amen. Let's pray together tonight. Father, I come to you. God, I'm grateful today that you seem fit. You seem fit, Lord, to create man. You seem fit, Lord Jesus, to provide a way of redemption for that man. God, I'm grateful today, God, for your people to have gathered together on this Wednesday night. Help us, God, to open our hearts and our minds. God, to your word, God, we'll be eternally grateful, Lord, unto you this evening in this place. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen to the church. Amen amen you may be seated tonight in jesus name god is one part one amen deuteronomy six and four if there's a verse that anybody should or ought to commit to memory concerning the oneness of god it should be deuteronomy six and four not only is not only is this 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 scripture deuteronomy six and four is it not the only it's not the only oneness verse that we have in our Bibles but we, we we go to it often as a as a board to spring from and whenever I say it's not the only one there are at least there are at least 3,000 plus scriptures in the Old Testament alone that deals with the oneness of God and so it's not the only one it's just one among many and a a notable one uh, that that God even commanded Moses that should be committed to the memory and the hearts and souls of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. It is a primary one. We might say even for us apostolic Pentecostals, we go there because of the emphasis that God places on it himself. Again, Here in Deuteronomy 6, he is telling Moses that uh, I want Israel to hear the Lord. Our God is one Lord. And not only do Israel need to hear it, but they need to teach generations from this point forward about it. They need to be acquainted with it. And so since that's the case, in essence, uh, God, by giving direction to Moses, wanted the children of Israel to know that the oneness of God is the fountainhead for all the other commandments that God would give to them and would offer to them. The other commandments, statutes, and judgments that he begins to speak of here in Deuteronomy 6, uh, they they would be kept because they would come in uh, appreciation and they would come in uh, uh, the realization that there was a God and he was one. Notice verse number 2. Of Deuteronomy 6. He says that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God. And oftentimes in scripture when we read the word fear. And it's talking about the fear of the Lord. It's not talking about us getting and trembling. And just being terrified of the great God almighty. Although I wish some people would do that. But nevertheless. Just terrified of the great God almighty. But that they would have a reverence. So he's saying that thou mightest reverence the Lord thy God and then he goes to keep all his statutes, his judgments, his commandments, so on and so forth. Meaning this, that there is a direct connection between us keeping the commands of God because we reverence him as a one true God. There was a connection that it would keep the commandments of the Lord and and the judgments of the Lord because they had the realization or they had the revelation or they accounted their God as one God. The Bible even bears this out again in Exodus 20 where God speaks and gives the commandments unto Moses and the children of Israel it is in Exodus 20 that is enlisted the Ten Commandments we also have them in Deuteronomy but within Exodus are the Ten Commandments and it starts out like this that chapter 20 it says and God spake all these words saying I am the Lord Thy God, and we have a lot of scripture tonight, going to be reading a lot of verses, a lot of Bible. If you miss your Bible reading today, you're getting it right now. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's interesting to me that God in his giving of the commandments before he would talk about them bowing down to another, which bowing down is the basic definition of worship. It's the definition of worship, bowing down, being awestruck, bowing down, reverence, honor, before he ever talks about bowing down to other gods, so before he talks about worship or before he talks about taking the name of God in vain, which could relate very easily to our baptism. Because that's where we take on his name. It could also relate to our holiness. Uh-huh. Amen. So before he talks about any of those things, or thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness to your neighbor. Before he does all that, he comes out of the chute. Thou shalt have no other gods before Me why again, because if you can solidify a people's reverence to God as the one true God, then there is a connection with them more than likely. They have greater uh, success at keeping the commandments of God. If they see him as the only God. Mm -hmm. As the alone, no other God. Let's look at some verses of scripture. Now, I'm just going to read these, but I get I'm excited. Whenever I read these verses of scripture that come forth in like Isaiah 43, 44, 45. You start in Isaiah 43, even 42, and you'll start hitting on these these notions of God, letting his readers, letting people know that he's alone, he's by himself. There's not another very plain language in our English language to take in. Isaiah 43 and verse 10, the Bible states these words. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Now isn't that good? Amen. That's pretty plain language. Isaiah 44 in verse six, thus saith the Lord, the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and beside me there is no God. Verse eight of the same chapter says, fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it. Ye are my, ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? He answers his own question. Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Verse 24 of the same chapter. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Don't you like those Isaiah 45 and verse six that they may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Verse 21 of the same chapter tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together who have declared this from ancient time, who have told it from that time. Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Verse 22, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 46 and verse 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is none else. I am God, there is none like me. So let's review real quick. And all these verses speaking concerning the Lord our God. There's none before Him, there's none after Him, there's no Savior beside Him. He's the first, He's the last, there's none beside Him, there's none beside Him, there's no God, He knows not any. He did the heavens alone. Amen. He spread the earth by Himself. There's none beside Him, there's none else, there's no God else beside Him, there's none beside Him, there's none else, there's none else, there's none like Him. God is... One. Amen. God is one. And that one God concept was so important that Moses was told that it should be taught and it should be in the heart of the Jews. It should be taught diligently to their children and their children's children along the way when they rise up, when they go to bed among the concourses where they walk and that they should bind that even among other things, but bind that, that here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, bind that upon their hands and upon their foreheads and that it should be written upon the post and the gates of their houses. And the Jews have followed these instructions for Centuries and centuries. They have their little phylacteries that they wear on their heads and on their hands that have among other verses, but written Deuteronomy 6 and 4, 4 through 9, I think it is, I'm not, don't quote me on that, in those little boxes and on, on the post of their their doors and the gates of their houses, they have these little uh, mezuzah, I might have said, that's probably not right, but, but mezuzah, and they have it written in there on their post and on their gates because God said that this concept of me being one is so important that I want it in a tangible place everywhere where these people go, where they live, where they walk, where they sleep, I want them not to miss the fact that I'm one, why? Because I've already told you. If they can get it in their spirit and the revelation that I'm one, I have a greater probability that they'll keep the commands, the statutes, and the other judgments that I have for them. If they'll get the fact that I'm one, amen. And so, this whole idea of God's one is just not something dangling over here on the right side, is it? A, it is a basis for everything else that we believe. Yes. And everything else that we practice. All the other nations of the known world of that time and of that culture, the Old Testament times, they were polytheistic people, meaning they believed and served a multiplicity of gods. Many gods, they endorsed that. They believed that they served different gods—gods gods that were control over the rivers or over the rain, gods that were control over fire, gods that were control over mountains, over fertility. Uh, that their gods were had jurisdiction over certain geographies of land and locations. That is what all the other nations of the world believed. So you understand the contrast that comes forth whenever God calls a people out of a people. And says you're going to serve one God. From the very go. That sets them apart. Just serving a one God. Sets them apart from the rest of the entire world. Amen. Amen. Serving one God. Is part of our distinctives. Amen. And we have holiness. We have things like that. But first and foremost. It is the oneness of our God. That distinguishes us. I know today now, now the Muslims, they serve one God. It's not the God that we serve, but they serve one God. All right. The Jews, according to the Jewish people, serve, you know, one God. And Christianity you know, has the claim of serving one God as well. But what I'm saying in that then known world, it was polytheistic. It was many gods, several gods. And so serving one God set them apart. Amen. Let's consider this concept of these, these, these many gods that they serve. Uh, I think this is a good scripture of a case in point that they did serve those. And so as a result, and I think this is important, as a result, since the known world did that, they would oftentimes place then their understanding of Israel's God through the lens of what they understood about their gods. And see, that happens not just then, that happens now. People have an idea about our God, but it's skewed and it's colored about their idea about the gods they serve. Yeah, they think all gods are equal, but that's not the case. We read in Scripture then in 1 Kings 20 and verse 23, the Bible says, and the servants of the king of Syria, who at that time was being hadad he was the king of Syria, his servants came and said unto him, their gods, speaking of Israel, they're already wrong, thinking of a plurality of gods. But their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. They had already went to battle against Israel, and they failed miserably. Syria came back with their tail tucked between their legs. Israel was victorious. They're saying their gods are the gods of the hills. They had, they had fought upon a Samaria, which was a mountainous area. And they say, therefore, we, they were stronger than us. Because what are they thinking? They're thinking already the way that they view their gods. Their God is a God of geography. He's probably a God of the hills or the mountains. And so the reason why they were able to overtake us is because we were fighting in the mountains. So their God had jurisdiction there. See what they're doing? Amen. And they're thinking already in the plurality of gods rather than God. Huh. And they say, but let us fight against them in the plain or in the valley. And surely we shall be stronger than they, so here they are taking their own belief of what they perceive God or gods to be and they're superimposing it on the one true God. But what they were mistaken is this. The God that Israel had didn't have a certain district or locality or mountains or river that he was over. Amen. <laughs> they weren't dealing with a God that couldn't operate out of a certain sphere or a certain area or certain limitations because the Assyrians thought that God's influence, again, is confined by the hills. So we'll get out of there and we'll take it to the plain. Amen. But they were mistaken. See, they had this process, if you will, process of thinking. Canaan, the land of promise that was given to the Israelites, it was a mountainous land. Jerusalem, where their temple was, it was up on a Elevated spot, mountainous area. Samaria, where they first lost their battle against the Israelites again. A mountainous area. So their God surely must be a God of the mountains. (laughs) Someone say amen. So, they were though incorrect. We're going to fight them in the valley. We're going to fight them on the plain. Because surely their God won't have government, won't have jurisdiction there. And that would have been a reasonable thought per se. Had they been dealing with other gods. But they were dealing with the one true God. Amen. And he knows no jurisdiction. And as I preach Sunday night. No limitations. The God that they were dealing with. Is the God that Isaiah 66 and 1 spoke of. Thus saith the Lord. The heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? Where is the place of I rest? Now you're telling me. That you're going to have great victory in the valley whenever I'm talking about a God whose heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. And we're not talking about some literal God with a literal bottom that's sitting on a literal throne in heaven and his feet reach all the way to the earth. No, it just speaks about the vastness, if you will, of our God. That he fills all space and he fills all time. In other words, he, if you're looking for a jurisdiction, he doesn't have then you're you you, you you'm going to look for a long time because even after he, Jesus, during the time of his death and burial, goes to the lower parts of the earth and he's getting keys. Why? Because there's no area or location he doesn't have jurisdiction over. He can even go down to hell. Huh? Uh-huh and exercise, if you will, authority there. Jeremiah says it like this. This is not up there. I'm just hitting this. Jeremiah 23 and verse 24 concerning this. He asked, God even asked, do not I feel the heaven and the earth? In Acts 17, the apostle Paul speaking to those that are in Athens at Mars Hill in verse 27. He poses the question. He says, "You you must feel after him. If happily you might find him for he, speaking of God, is not far from every one of us. Amen. So he doesn't have a jurisdiction. Psalms 139. We're talking. About, here's one of your little words. Omnipresent. We're talking about an omnipresent God. In Psalms 139 in verse number eight, David is speaking about God and says, If I ascend up into heaven, God, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. This one God who has no jurisdiction or limitation. So as it was in Ben-Hadad's day, so it was also in Abraham's day. And so it is now. And that is this. The oneness of God is our, as I stated a little bit earlier, is our initial point of separation from the rest of the world. Because Abraham's daddy, Tira, was one who served other gods. He was polytheistic. That means Abraham served a multitude of gods. He was polytheistic. And Joshua even brought this up in his book. Whenever he was challenging Israel, Joshua's nigh death. And he's challenging Israel. He, He states that popular phrase that we use and hang our hats on. But as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Well, it was before he said all that, he's challenging Israel to serve the one true God that their forefathers had served or served the gods, plurality, of those of some of their other ancestors and fathers. And he's challenging them. And so as he does this, he brings up this idea that the father of the Jews, Abraham, had come from a family that served a multiplicity of gods. Joshua 24 and verse 2. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwell on the other side of the flood in O time even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nicor, and they served other gods. But that being the case, God still approached Abram, who was ensnared, entrapped, overwhelmed from the lineage of his family of one who served other gods. And he called him and approached him all the way back in Genesis chapter number 12 and verse number 1. And the words of God to Abraham, who was a server of multiple gods, said, Get out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. See what's happening in this moment? He serves a multiplicity of gods, but God is calling him out. Get away from, get out of, from thy father's house. So Abraham's then allegiance to this one true God in the very beginning and from the onset was his point of separation from all other gods, false gods, and the rest of the world. By his endorsing, pulling in close, the one true God. Amen. That's where our separation starts. That's where our separation starts. And therefore, as a result of it, whenever you do that, then the object of everything we do, the object of everything we do transitions, huh? Your praises object transitions, the object of your prayer Transitions, the object of your worship transitions, the way you're baptized changes, be holy for I'm holy, God says that changes. And so whenever we whenever we talk about God being one, that affects every other area and discipline of our Christian lives. Mm -hmm. And it's all really encapsulated In the oneness of our God, because the Bible says see, it's all connected because the Bible talks about in the New Testament scripture that we become heirs according to the promise. The Bible says in Galatians 3, Galatians 3 and verse number 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the gentiles because the lord spoke to him you leave your you leave your country you leave your kindred you leave your father's house and he tells him and i will make you a blessing and i'll make you a blessing to all people he talks about him separating and then the blessing that will come upon him that the blessing of abraham might come on the gentiles this is not jews gentiles through what through jesus christ that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Now, look, let's go down to verse 16 and gather this in just a little bit. No more. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promises made, he saith not into seeds. And you'll see that in the Old Testament. Whenever God made the promise, whenever God made the promise to Abraham, he said to you and to your seed. He doesn't say seeds. He said but to your seed, not to seeds of many, but as of one and to thy seed which is Christ. But what happens in John 1, is it in verse 12? that and let me just read it i don't have it up here and i knew this was going to happen jesus that i was going to start teaching this tonight and every scripture wasn't going to be down that would pop into my little brain up here this evening amen but john 1 in chapter number and verse number 12 the bible states these words but as many received him speaking of jesus christ to them gave he power to become the sons of god even to them that believe on his name so what happens what happens he says, just one seed christ But whenever you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, whenever you're born again of the water and the spirit, you become a part of his family. Uh And therefore you are heirs according to the promise. You're not a Jew by physical birth, but you are by new birth. you you, you as they would call it, a spiritual Jew. You, you've been grafted into the branch as the New Testament Scripture speaks of. And as a result of it, the blessing that came upon old father Abraham, who is the father of all the Jews, who had a multiplicity of gods before his introduction to the God, the same blessing that comes upon him comes upon you because you're part of the family. And someone say amen. Now, what about this oneness of God? What big deal? Well, what big deal if i were to ask a question here this evening and some of you may know this cuz you're bible scholars if i were to ask you what did jesus say was the greatest two commandments of all the others than the scripture you remember when a scribe came to him and asked him so lord which which is the which is the first commandment which is the greatest commandment anybody just got it out there for me anybody what love the lord and love god and that's what we'll tip that's what we typically say and that's what, you know, I would chime in and probably typically say two, but. Let's read the scripture. Mark 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came. And having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, speaking of Christ, asked him, which is the first commandment of all. Verse 29. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is. We leave this part a lot of times out. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And the colon then, the colon, and then, and, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. You, the, the, the meat of the matter is all before the colon. Everything that comes after that. It's just kind of the additives that kind of bring fragrance to that which was before. In other words, he says the first of all commandments is this what? The oneness of God. The oneness of God. Now he says, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And he goes on to say, then the second is likened to the first. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But Jesus' reply to the scribe when he asked what was the first of all commandments was Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and verse number 5. The first of all commandments is this, buddy. God is one. God is one. Yes, you need to love God but you can't completely heart, mind, soul, and strength love God just on your own. You can only do that because he is one. You can't completely give love to God if he were many because you would have a divided, fragmented love, huh? And you're going to have to be real diligent to be getting equal love. He said, but you can with all of your mind, your soul and your strength, because firstly, first commandment, your God is one God. And so you can love him completely because he's all there is to love. Mm. He's one indivisible, absolutely one. And so the scribe got it. Look even at the scribe's response. He got it. He got the truth of the matter. Mark 12 and verse 32. And the scribe said unto him, well, master. Thou has said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. he said, you got it, buddy. That's right. There is one. He wasn't really telling the scribe anything that he didn't know. Because this has been something, as I said, 3,000 plus scriptures in the Old Testament law that they had, that they've seen, taught, understood, and have learned Amen. He knew what Christ was saying was the truth because there was enough evidence in the First Testament. There was enough evidence. Amen. To describe and tell us that our God is one. And so this this God is one message is not just littered all throughout the Old Testament pages, but it's in our New Testament pages as well. It is the first, as Jesus said, of all commandments. It is that original point of divide, of distinction. James 2.19, what does it say? Someone probably knows. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. James says you do well to believe that there is one God. So if you believe there's one God, thou hast done well. As a matter of fact, the devils believe there is one God. If I could say like this, to believe anything else is to be believing something even the devils don't believe. Wow! Our God is one. And so, you know, the problem in New Testament scripture is this. That many people had problems with accepting Jesus Christ because they didn't see him as he was. Jesus Christ was God, who is a spirit, according to John 4, 24. He was God plus flesh. Jesus Christ was God, who is a spirit. Has not flesh and blood. Jesus even said that. Spirit hath not flesh and blood. He is spirit plus flesh. And so they had a problem with accepting Christ because they didn't see him as that. They seen him as an imposter to their one true God. They seen someone that came that they thought were, was posing as another God and based upon their teaching of what they've known and they've learned from children up they knew there was only one and so for this other entity to become an into the picture that seems to have the power the Old Testament prophets said that only God would have do some of the things that Isaiah said only God would do they thought to themselves we got a problem we got somebody's trying to pose as God <laughs> He wasn't trying to be something he was not. It was just that God came down plus had flesh and came among us as Christ Jesus, something that we could feel, touch, and see because the Bible tells us that no man had seen God at any time. Why? Because God is a spirit. But whenever that spirit took on flesh, we seen him as Jesus Christ. And they had problems reckoning all this in their lives. We see it time and time again. Most of the time, you've heard me preach it. You know, that was Paul's problem. That's the reason why he persecuted the church because this Jesus Christ and people preaching about Jesus think here's an imposter trying to take, if you will, the flame and the light of our God. But whenever he fell down on that Damascus road and he said, "Who art thou, Lord?" and he Jesus re, or God replied, "I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest." He's like, "Oh, I'm tangling with the people of the one true. This guy is not an imposter. He's just God revealed. He's God revealed to humanity." Amen. Look at John 10 and verse 30. Jesus is speaking to some uh, of the people there of that time and area, and he says very plainly, I am my Father and One. And we will, in the future weeks, we will get into the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost language. Man, we'll talk about the oneness of God and how that proliferates all throughout our system, about one God, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. We'll talk, man, we'll just talk about a bunch of one stuff. But he says, I am my father, are one. Jesus speaking, I am my father, are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works have I shewed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? Right? And, and the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not. But for blasphemy, because that thou being man. Make us thyself God. There it is. They thought this, this no good. Dirty jokers come down trying to pose as God. <laughs> but they just didn't get it. But this that what that shows us, though, if we'll if we'll understand and take it what that shows us though, then is that this one God mentality was so ingrained in the part of their culture, their belief, who they. It was what it was. It was so true that they were trying to put their finger on something whenever they thought it was saying there was another. Do you understand what I'm saying? This was so ingrained in them that there was one God when another one came forth and kind of doing some of the things that the prophet said only God would do stuff like that. They're saying, is this another? And they're saying this can't be right because there's only one. So see, it was just all that scripture does is reaffirm the fact that there is one God. Said so we're not we're not against you for anything you've done before blasphemy because thou being a man makest thyself God, but it wasn't man that was trying to make himself God. In reality, it was God, who is spirit, that was manifesting himself as a man, the man Christ Jesus, and so Jesus was trying to let them know that he was in fact the great God of heaven that had come down in the fashion of a man. We'll look at that perhaps in some later weeks, like uh, Philippians chapter number two. But they were not going to stone him for the works, but for being God. Sure. Here's some scriptures that just uh, reiterate the fact that Jesus Christ was God plus flesh. All right. One of my favorites, you mark this down. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. Someone might know it. I've mentioned enough. Second Corinthians. 519. Just the first phrase right there. You can look at the whole thing. There's nothing wrong with that. To wit, that God was in Christ. Huh. God was in Christ. Uh-huh. That spirit in Christ was God. Mm-hmm. We'll look at maybe a little later the dual nature of Jesus Christ that he was God, but he was also man. The man aspect of of Christ, of course, was the flesh part of Christ. Galatians 4, 4, talking about that which was made of woman. That was the flesh. Right? But this God that was in Christ, it was divine. And so you have this dichotomy, if you will, of God. That on one part, he's sleeping on the boat because he's a man. But in the next part, he's walking on the water because he's God. Huh? <laughs> oh, Lord, I- not to jump over and get, you know, too busy here and all of this. But uh, uh, so so that's a good scripture. First Timothy 316, another good one for this fact that Jesus Christ is God plus flesh. Right, because the Bible tells us without controversy, greatest, the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh, the flesh and the only the flesh that he's manifested in is the man Christ Jesus. Amen. That's the only flesh God ever had. (laughs) if We can say it like that. That's the only image of God you'll ever see. Lastly, the oneness of God. I think this is important. The oneness of God is crucial to our salvation. Our salvation experience. Jesus Christ taught about the importance of repentance, baptism, both of water and spirit throughout the Gospels. He shared with us at different times the importance of these things in the Gospels. For instance, and these this is Jesus. OK, this is not the apostle saying this is what Jesus said. This is Jesus. And I'm just saying that. I mean, I sh- we shouldn't have no problem with the apostle saying this is what Jesus said because they confirmed it unto us, the Bible says in Hebrews, but nevertheless, this is the words of Jesus. He says in Luke 13, 3, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. I mean, so from that, you know, I even don't need 11, 11 week course on repentance. Jesus is telling me if I don't repent, I'm going to perish. That's pretty bold. Some old time preachers used to preach repent or perish <laughs> it's like talk about dividing the line, no gray areas, repent or perish. So repentance is vital. Repentance is important. It's important to our salvation. We understand that repent or perish. John three and five, though, then Jesus again, speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus answered, barely, barely, I say unto thee, except the man be born of water, which is baptism and of spirit, and filling of the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Again, that is bowed. So Christ is very bowed on this repentance thing, repent or perish. He's very bowed on this born of water and born of spirit thing concerning our salvation. It's either you're born of it, and if you're not, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You're not going there. All right? But he's just as emphatic Concerning his oneness. The Bible says in John 8, 23. Jesus. And he said unto them. Ye are from beneath. I am from above. Ye are of this world. I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you. That ye shall die in your sins For if ye believe not that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. Now, note if you look in your not all Bibles do this, but in verse twenty-four, the He in a lot of Bibles is in in italics, which means that was added by the translators. That little He. So if we keep the He out and don't put in what wasn't there, it would be except except ye believe, or for if ye believe, for if ye believe not that I am. If you believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. I know this is Jesus speaking in New Testament scripture, but everything he is saying, how he is not beneath, but he's from above. He's not of this world. He's not here of this world, but I am not of this world. That is not Jesus speaking as humanity. That's Jesus speaking as divinity. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. And he says, unless you believe that I am now, he switched rows here again. As Jesus, except you believe that me as humanity is the almighty God. He said, you die in your sins. Wait a minute. I am. But what are we talking about then? So, so, so it's not just that Jesus is very emphatic about the importance of repentance or the importance of baptism in Jesus name or the importance of the infilling of the Holy Ghost. He believes it's very important that you realize who he is. I am. And the Old Testament, I am the way that God revealed himself unto Moses on the backside of that desert. Whenever Moses said, I'm going, I know you want me to go back to Egypt. I know you want to be a deliverer, but who should I say sent me? And God says, I am that I am. Tell them I am that I am sent you. The whole, there's there's a lot of different ways that the translation of I am that I am can be translated. Here are a few. Whenever it says I am, it expresses the fact that he is the infinite and the original personal God. Who is behind everything and to whom everything must finally be traced. That he is the author of life. I am that I am signals the truth that, listen to me, that nothing else defines who God is but God. Nothing else defines who God is but God. In the Hebrew, that word I am, it's one of the, it's one of the, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Golly, what is, uh, the verb to be, it's one of the, what am I, what am I trying to say, huh, what? Yeah, it's a helping verb, but it's one of the, I wish I could get out of my mouth, just like stink, stink, stunk, it's one of the, someone help me here. That's all right. It'll, it'll hit me a moment. Nevertheless, in the Hebrew, I am. It's from the verb, huh? Tense. Thank you. One of the tenses of the verb to be. <laughs> thank you, Brother Mason. Hallelujah. But in the Hebrew, the verbs to be have no time connected with them. Time is supplied only by the context, not by the verb itself. So what this does, I am that I am, it represents God as the absolute. (laughs) The absolute. So here's some different phraseologies, interpretations from the I am that I am. And this is what Jesus said in the New Testament scripture. Unless you believe that I am. Yes, you believe that I, unless you believe that I am the author of life, that I am the absolute, God was saying to Moses, I am that I am. I am who I was. I am who I will be. I will be who I was. I am what I caused to be. And this is one of my personal favorites. I will be all that is necessary as the occasion arises. <laughs> so Jesus is telling them, except you believe that I am, you will die in your Sins, unless you believe that I am the absolute, the only, the undivisible. So this is more than just like an option on the car. We just take or leave. No, it is crucial to our salvation experience. Because whenever you get the oneness of God mixed up, your baptisms mixed up. Every other aspect of commandment and judgment and statute that we do in life is messed up. If you get your God factor messed up. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and I'm I'm hastening to a close for this little introduction here tonight. But the difficulty with the religious world today, again, it's not much different from them of long ago, is that they're allowing man-made, and I stress that, man-made traditions that was contrived in our history to replace biblical truth. Because many read the Bible and understand the Bible while it's almost like they have a page magnifier and they're looking through it, but that page magnifier is some historical tradition of time past. What I'm saying is, People get really stumped up with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost language in Scripture because there was an idea that was birthed concerning, called the Trinity, and now everybody views what they read through that lens. But before that was ever birthed, nobody had any confusion with Father, Son, and Spirit language in Scripture because that historical thing never took place of the tradition of man being created. Say, well, why, why didn't they get more clear? Well, God, this could really help us if they would just say things a little bit clearer. We wouldn't, we wouldn't think that it was talking about the Trinity. Well, you know what? This predates the Trinity. This predates the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't sit down today and begin to write something that I think that I'm going to have to make clear for something that's going to be made up somewhere in the future in order to bring clarity. What I'm saying today. reading the bible then through a lens of looking through the past of something that's been man-made and it's 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 been just that man-made but this is biblical truth and anything man-made never replaces biblical truth so people are allowing and so here's what's happening then people are allowing the thoughts and the opinions of what others think about god to become the skeleton of their belief in god you understand what i'm saying they're allowing other people's thoughts and opinions about God to form their own thoughts and opinions about God. Let God form his own thoughts and opinions about himself. We don't need the historical lens. People say, well, the early church fathers, well, baloney on the church fathers. Let's talk about the father. Huh? So after. I mean, after the, the development of the church, the birth of the church, even after the apostles' generation, it's after all of that. After, after, after Pentecost, after, after the, 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 uh, the conditioning of the church through the epistles, after the apostles and the things that they taught and preached, after all of that generation has died, it's only later that we get this concept that people then struggle so much with today whenever they look at the word of the God. It's we often talk about the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., and that was just concerning baptism, where they changed the baptismal formula, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. But the Trinity really did come to form until about 381 A.D., which was the Council of Constantinople, because they all kind of left the Holy Ghost just dangling out there somewhere. They really didn't know what to do with it. And so it wasn't really until 381 that they brought the full development in this concept of the Trinity that's co-equal, co-eternal, and sub We'll talk about that a little bit later. But in it all, we're going to be talking about God is one. Amen. Is everybody okay? Hallelujah. Stand with me here tonight. Allocated four weeks for this. We'll see how that goes. But I got to be careful because whenever I start on a dog trail, man, I got to follow it till it, like, ends. And I got to, you know, I still have a lot of my life I can teach. I don't have to teach it all in just one series, right, Brother Mason? Tell me I don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Because I know you all think sometimes I've approached some books of the Bible. It's like the last time he's ever going to touch the page of the book of Acts. You know, he's never going to touch it. <sighs> got to discipline myself here. Amen. I want you to come on these Wednesdays. I want you to be in church. I want you to be attentive. I want you to take notes. Amen. Because I'm probably going to get out the old whiteboard, do some scrawling on it. And I think it's important. We need these things, folks. We got we to get our doctrine of the oneness of God right. You, 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 should under, you need to get to a place where you can understand it and that you can explain it. Amen. For any man might ask of the hope that lies within you. Amen. It's important today. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads tonight and pray. Father, I love you.